This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. In this week's podcast from the Center for Social Innovation, Dennis McRae, Starbucks Vice President of Corporate Social Responsibility, tells us how the U.S.'s leading coffee retailer is reinventing international coffee trade to address sustainability issues from the Conversations Network's Social Innovation Channel. Hi, this is Elena Connor Snibby. And I'm Eric Nee. We are your hosts on Social Innovation Conversations. Today we're excited to bring you another presentation from the Center for Social Innovation in the Stanford Discussions series. The Center for Social Innovation is a growing community of leaders committed to a just, prosperous, and sustainable world. The Center offers leadership development programs and publishes our award-winning quarterly journal, the Stanford Social Innovation Review. Registered members of the Conversations Network receive a wide variety of benefits. For free membership or to help support our efforts through your donations, visit conversationsnetwork.org. Our audio content is delivered by Limelight Networks, taking the cost and complexity out of Internet distribution on the web at limelightnetworks.com. And now, here's our presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. I uh, manage the corporate social responsibility programs for Starbucks in an area we call business practices. So it's primarily the things that we do uh, on the uh, back end of our business in the origin countries where we purchase products. Um, and I'll walk through a little bit of that. Uh, what I had uh, started with, and I'll skip through those slides, is a little bit about Starbucks and um, kind of as you think about companies doing business in the region where you're going to go, why we have uh, a real feeling of affinity for the country and a real connection and a sense of um, partnership with the producers and the people of Guatemala. Prior to coming to work for Starbucks, I was a Peace Corps volunteer. As Ben said, I have a, a background in Latin America. I worked uh, in microfinance programs after I did the Peace Corps for about 10 years. Um, I got my MBA at the school on the other side of the, the bay and uh, went on to work for a few startups that did social ventures and social uh, entrepreneurship programs in Central America. That led me to Starbucks because I found in the travels and the work I did, and you may find the same thing, that they have a very different uh, reality on the ground in the countries where they do business than we perceive that in the U.S. or at least in, among consumers. And I always thought that was a bit of a disconnect. So traveling around Central America and meeting people who were profoundly impacted in positive ways by a company that here in the U.S. we sometimes do, uh, see a different side of, or at least in the, in the sort of circles that I was in, I saw a very different view of the company, sort of the ubiquity of the brand, its growth, its prevalence in, in new communities and all of these things, and not understanding that uh, it can do so many great things. So what I do is really bring uh, corporate social responsibility to sort of the, the producer level of working directly with our growers, working directly with our supply chain on a lot of initiatives that don't really make it into the consumer's eye or into the, to the forefront of our retail store. Um, so I always wish there was a better um, example of that. I wish we were doing a better job making sure that our customers were aware of those things. You, you're going to get a lot of that today. You've, you're going to get copies or you have them of our CSR annual report that I brought. What I think is the story that's kind of the good, the good story is the one that we, that we did the video documentary for. Mostly for our, this was done for our retail partners, our retail employees, so that they would have a better understanding of some of the activities that are going on. And then we have this version that is kind of the uncut version that gives some information that is, I think, much more transparent about our business and has a lot of uh, challenges raised in here and some concerns by the producers as well. So I thought 
be good for you to see that side of it as well. I mentioned about why we do some of these things, and I think you, if you know the company and a little bit about Starbucks, the CSR mission and the way that we live our guiding principles is core to the business and the, and the development of the company from, the, from its very inception. So uh, people like myself that, that have come to the company with this kind of understanding that it can be a force for positive change believe very strongly that this, this can work and do good things. So it's for us much more than just uh, something we put up on the wall and have six guiding principles. It's the way we make decisions, and it's really how we live out um, things that we want to accomplish in our lives through the company. And I think if you talk to a lot of, of our employees and, and uh, baristas at the stores, they sort of will say the same thing. The things that they do on their free time, activities that the company undertakes, are really around trying to make the world a better place. So it isn't, isn't just a tagline, but it's really how we, how we operate the business. So I want to talk a little bit about that from the coffee perspective, because I know that is what you're interested in. I know that better than some of the other things we do. Our integrated approach to sustainable trade really starts with um, an overarching code of conduct. And for us as a company, it's around ensuring that there's a commitment to the environment and the communities where our products are produced. So sustainability has several layers for us, but in terms of a structure and how we organize ourselves in the company, it sort of looks like this on paper. For uh, agricultural products, such as coffee, we have very detailed sustainability guidelines that are called cafe practices. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about that shortly. And then for goods and products that are manufactured in other countries, uh, in factory settings, we have a supplier certification program that's based on a social responsibility program. That's like you've heard about in other industries, sort of code of conduct, um, human rights issues, and, and specific measurements for performance in environmental and social issues. We buy from a lot of places, not just Guatemala, but as you can see, the circles are pretty heavy in Central America for coffee. Um, and of course, that's because it's uh, um, one of the regions of the world that produces the best coffee. Uh, we only buy Arabica coffees for Starbucks. Um, those are highly grown coffees at uh, 3,000 meters and above elevations. We also struggle with all of the uh, possible um, eco-labels and um, good things that we can do in coffee. And I just put this up to point out that for all of the certified coffees that we purchase and all the different um, initiatives that are out there, coffee is very political. If you haven't figured that out already, you'll, you'll get a taste of that firsthand when you're, when you're in the country. Um, and there are no shortage of organizations that step up to try to validate that coffee is what it is, that somehow it's different, it's uh, differentiated and social um, and not just qualitative aspects. So all of these things we participate in uh, very um, actively, but more importantly, we really want the center logo to represent sustainability, and that's what we put most of our efforts into to do that, because individually a lot of these um, initiatives have such constraints for a company of the scale and the size that Starbucks has that we have to go beyond what they can do right now. So it's a good thing. You'll see in the CSR report some, a lot of detail around fair trade, so I'm not going to go into that. We talk about the white cup in, a, in last year's CSR report. This is probably the best CSR report that, uh, that we've produced. Well, certainly we've gotten a lot of awards for it. Um, very transparent. It's also probably going to be the largest one. So next year we're going to a new format. We'll be doing a lot of things online. Um, you won't see a, such a heavy, dense print report. Uh, we'll have the same level of information, but it'll be online. So. Um, we talk about the white cup and the company because, of course, that's iconic. It also has a lot of negative connotations and a lot of baggage as we see the white cups um, spreading around the world and wanting to do our best to mitigate that impact. Um, so in the CSR report, we tackle very tough issues by getting behind uh, the white cup. Sustaining coffee communities, then, is detailed in the report. And um, what we do, and, and you'll see this playing out in Guatemala, is we have an approach that is um, 
integrated and has been in development for many years. Um, we had forged uh, very strong relationships with many of our coffee suppliers that go back 15 years and, and longer. Um, and the company's very young, if you recall. So we have those foundation, we have those relationships since the beginning. That includes paying premium prices. So it's very important in the coffee industry that people are able to sustain themselves and their families. And uh, we are very uh, adamant about that, that quality deserves a premium, a substantial premium that, that goes directly to the producer. For us, a, pre a premium price of $1.28 average per pound on a, when versus the uh, commodity price, that was about 25% over the commodity price uh, for coffee. So coffee has um, trades, the types of coffee that we buy are washed Arabica coffees, trade on, uh, as you know, on the New York Sea. Those coffee prices fluctuate based on supply and demand and other speculations and, and so on. We um, have distanced ourselves from that market. Specifically what we've done is we've gone into outright and direct contracting methods where we fix a price at a premium above that. So really to uh, protect the producer from those fluctuations. So we have a long history of doing that at, at uh, prices that are often double and sometimes triple. And keep in mind, now this is an average price per pound. Uh, people always ask me, so what's the minimum and the maximum? I think this year we're going to report that, um, and I'm not positive, but uh, I'm hoping we do because it's a wonderful number to show because um, we pay a substantial amount for um, our coffees and we have a bell curve that's really quite interesting around this, this price without um, coffees very far on the low end. Um, Cafe Practices is uh, our integrated purchasing guidelines. So as I said with the swirl of eco-labels that exist, uh, we as a company decided there had to be um, a much better way to ensure that there was sustainability in the supply chain. So we developed Cafe Practices over several years. It's still in development, I should say, because we're constantly fine-tuning it with stakeholder input on things that where we think the bar can be raised or things that we were unrealistic and can't actually be accomplished in the coffee sector. Um, so it's around uh, uh, social conditions, it's around environmental performance, lots of things that you'll hear about probably when you're in the country that are challenges for coffee farmers to do. But as many of them say to us, it's the right thing to do and they knew that they were supposed to do this, but it took a customer to ask for it before they actually were motivated to do it. And I think that's always an interesting situation that the industry is in. Fair trade and organic coffees, I'll talk about that as well. Those are certified coffees that we do carry and we do buy um, amazing volumes to bring to our customers and to help those industries and those certification models improve as well. And then access to credit. This is really the financing that's required and I, th I think in your program you'll be talking to fair trade co-ops. I think they'll reiterate the importance of that. We provide about eight and a half million dollars into alternative loan funds. Um, most of that is financing coffee that uh, supplies a lot of our competitors. So it isn't something we do um, to finance only our suppliers. Many of our suppliers have um, uh, access to sources of capital, so they're very bank worthy, um, but a lot of uh, producers who are um, small, maybe not well organized, often don't have that access. So we feel that that's a, a, something we can contribute to the industry to help people improve quality and get the, the capital they need so they can sell their coffee at a higher price instead of having to sell it to some middleman who, who takes advantage of them at the wrong time. Social development projects, uh, those are the investments that we make on top of our purchases. Uh, we tie them usually to the purchasing, in other words, working in partnership, as you saw in that model. Uh, but we also do a number of contributions through NGOs. So we have partnerships with, uh, in Guatemala specifically with Save the Children, with CARE, with Mercy Corps. In the region, we have partnerships with Conservation International um, and a number of smaller organizations through the Specialty Coffee Association as well that do social projects from health clinics to micro-enterprise um, to uh, uh, projects with women, literacy, a, a number of things. 
And then we have a farmer support center. So um, we were the first uh, coffee company to put in place a team of agronomists. They are based in San Jose, Costa Rica. It's headed up by uh, uh, two people actually from uh, the directors from Guatemala. He's got an agronomist who travels around Guatemala pretty much with a laptop and a, and a Jeep. So I, I've never been able to pinpoint him in any place. He doesn't have an office. He's always on the road. He's always at farms, which is great. And the other agronomists work out of the office in San Jose and serve the other countries in the region. So I mentioned cafe practices. Um, so Peter Torbiarte, Peter's our director of, uh, of our agronomy office in Costa Rica. Um, he and I worked very closely for several years in Seattle um, before he opened that office. So that office is relatively new. It's about two and a half years old. Um, and he is out in the fields all the time, traveling to different regions, working with co-ops, working with farmers, really helping them understand Starbucks requirements for quality. And again, this is key to the success for the coffee producers. If they can't produce a product where they get a premium price, then um, they're in trouble and it's really not a sustainable model. Uh, with Cafe Practices, these guidelines, um, it requires a real partnership with the producers. So something like this can't be imposed from the north. We've seen this effort through other sustainability programs, codes of conduct, and things like that that come through the coffee industry set by people in a, a consuming country without real regard for whether the producers can do it. In this case, um, luckily, we've had people on the ground. We've worked very closely with producers. Even a, this co-op in the right corner, very contentious meeting uh, with them in Mexico um, around what are the things that they would need to do to be able to sell coffee to us and um, what were the kinds of premiums that we could put in place to ensure that they could do that. And I say that uh, cafe practices can be a challenge for producers because it's really complex. It's uh, complex and, and comprehensive in the sense that uh, they, they have to do a lot of things. Uh, so first of all, it has prerequisite, they have to be producing high quality coffee. I think uh, San Miguel produces about 3 million pounds of coffee a year. We buy most of that. So that's the best coffee um, from the Antigua region. We're very proud of it. It comes both from the small producers, as you saw, that sell to the mill, but also from a couple of the estates there, including San Miguel. Um, the coffee that they can't sell to us, they are able to sell to probably our competitors. The coffee that they can't sell to our competitors, they sell locally. Um, you'll see it in Antigua, and it's sold as gourmet coffee to, um, in the local market. Um, so really, having the ability to produce a high-quality coffee that they can export and get a premium price is a prerequisite. Otherwise, we don't want them going through these other steps. It's not responsible to make them or ask them and mandate changes to their mills, changes to the infrastructure, unless we're going to put our money behind that. Economic transparency then goes hand-in-hand hand with that. So just as we look at fair trade, if a premium price is flowing, is there documentation, is there evidence that it gets to the producer? And that's a prerequisite for cafe practices as well. And then it's all independently scored and verified. So on the social environmental conditions, we have about 130 inspectors right now around the world who visit farms on a daily basis, and they're assessing them, giving them scores, and reporting that uh, back to the, our auditor, which is scientific certification system. So we, we have several layers between us and the producer to ensure the integrity of the program. And that's what makes it complicated. The third-party verification, as I mentioned, is um, there's a lot of information about this. If you are finished with your exams and want to do some browsing before you leave, you should, uh, should do that. There's a, um, a lot of information on the SCS website. And I actually have found when I travel, it's, people ask a lot of questions about it. Sometimes we uh, don't do a great job of getting this information to producers. They may not have access to the Internet. They might not have an exporter who's sharing all of this with them. So the tools that are available are, uh, as I said, it's a complex program because there's a lot of information. It has to be that way to be run well. So there has to be guidance for producers. There has to be self-evaluation checklists so they can see if they'd be able to produce good quality coffee. 
There's a whole number of things that they do. And then the Guatemalan Coffee Association, Ana Cafe, has also taken this on and does a lot of training for its producers because they see this as a competitive advantage in the global marketplace. They don't want to see Guatemala slip behind Kenya or Ethiopia or um, uh, neighboring countries like El Salvador where the governments and other groups are putting money into improving quality and, and helping their producers understand cafe practices. So the program, uh, and the reason we spend a lot of time talking about it is because it's substantial for us. And if you look at the goals that we had each year, we've met our goals, um, in fact exceeded them, which was amazing. Um, you can see that this last year in 2005, we had a goal of 75 million pounds to purchase through cafe practices. I mean, all of the coffee had to be produced and achieve a verified score. This year, for 2006, it's 150. That fiscal year ended a few weeks ago. We'll be sharing the results of that in, the, in early January. Um, and I'm confident that we'll be hitting our numbers there as well. And we have a huge goal next year of 225 million pounds. That's, that's a phenomenal stretch goal, and we have to add more inspectors. So, you know, if you want to go into coffee verification when you graduate, there's going to be lots of opportunities. <laughs> there's not a lot of people out there doing that. And I mentioned fair trade, and I think uh, it's important that you kind of understand where we are with fair trade at Starbucks because it's something that we um, haven't done a lot of promotion around and we often get criticized for that. Fair trade, as you know, ensures that farmers get a fair price. Um, in addition, there are some social conditions and other factors that are, that are there and, and increasingly there's environmental performance indicators as well that the farmers are expected to adhere to. Um, fair trade is a great system for farmers that are organized into democratically run cooperatives. A farm like San Miguel that you just saw would not be able, eligible for fair trade. So there are some geographic limitations and there are some structural limitations for fair trade. With good reason, as the structure of fair trade and the way the system was set up was to really serve those small producers that weren't well organized or um, didn't have access to markets readily. Our purchases of fair trade coffee have um, increased dramatically every year. Last year we were um, North America's largest purchaser of fair trade coffee at uh, 11 half million pounds. This year we had a goal of 12 million. I'm confident that um, we've exceeded that as well. I wouldn't be surprised if, I don't know what it is, but I, I would imagine it's um, perhaps double or maybe closer to 15 million. I'm sure it's, it's got a, that growth trend has to be continuing. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. And foremost is the work that the fair trade institutions have done to address quality. We could not buy fair trade coffee uh, in 2001 when the company was being asked to buy coffee. In fact, I knew people who were boycotting the company and picketing the company, and at the same time, the infrastructure wasn't there, the co-ops weren't organized, the quality wasn't there, there were a lot of challenges. Today, we see that that has shifted, and that's a, that in large part is due to those investments of helping producers improve and access the market. Fair trade um, doesn't have any kind of quality component, so a price for fair trade Arabicas is $1.26. That's actually $1.21, and then they have a five cent premium that go into social projects. Um, and if the market price goes above $1.21, so the fair trade is, a, is, acts, uh, is fixed to the New York Sea. If the New York Sea rises above $1.21, then the price has to be whatever that is plus the five cent uh, premium on top of that. So it guarantees producers five cents over the sea. In you know, some places where higher quality coffee is produced, that becomes a floor. Um, and that's, a, um, I'm sorry, a ceiling instead of a floor. And as a ceiling, that can be, that can be a real challenge. The San Miguel coffees are not produced by um, small farmers that are democratically organized in a co-op that are on the fair trade registry. So it's, it's difficult to compare. In terms of quality of coffees, there are some amazing fair trade coffees that come out of Guatemala. Um, I'm sure you'll see some of those. So um, it depends. But overall, there's been challenges, I think, 
in, for most fair trade producers to really understand their customers and be able to forge those relationships. And recently we've seen a real, a real turnaround where that's, that's taking place and it's a good thing. I mentioned access to credit, the loans, and so I don't need to spend much time on that. I think you understand the concept and why that's important. Some of the groups that, that, that we fund with these loans, Ecologic Finance is one. So they lend, as I said, to a, a great deal of um, farmers that are in the fair trade system. And uh, we also have a good deal of money in the Verde Ventures Loan Fund that's a part of Conservation International. So they target not only coffee, but um, while our money is designated for coffee producers and cocoa producers, Verde Ventures of CI, they also target um, um, ecotourism, other businesses, a lot of rainforest uh, sort of businesses that CI has been responsible for helping get going. Then um, I need to mention our Tazo tea brand as well because that, that does fall into what we do and also because there's a link to Guatemala. Tazo has done a great job of diversifying its um, ingredients for both its uh, ready-to-drink beverages but also for all of its teas. And um, you'll see that Tazo uses organic. They have a very large commitment to fair trade for spices and botanicals, specifically out of Guatemala right now. Um, they have an amazing project in Coban. Uh, in fact, they're working with a woman that I've come across in business meetings. I thought she looked familiar. Turns out she was a Peace Corps volunteer when I was a Peace Corps volunteer over 10 years ago in the country. And she stayed in Guatemala and decided to help uh, a women's enterprise there in, in the Coban area. So that's pretty neat because now she's selling the Tazo. So I'm on the other side being able to understand and appreciate the work that she's doing. We also have a partnership with uh, Mercy Corps that's extended to Guatemala. That is our chai project that started in India as a model of working with producer estates, tea estates, and communities where people could not possibly be absorbed on the tea estates. In other words, there wasn't enough employment. So Mercy Corps worked with us on a um, job training program, youth development, a number of uh, literacy and community investments, and they're doing that now in this uh, areas of Guatemala where Taza does business. So when we talk about Antigua, I wanted to um, just emphasize that Antigua is a very interesting area because they have a strong emphasis on quality, sustainability, and regional differentiation. So you'll see this, in fact, it's very political. You'll see coffees that are real Antiguas and you'll see coffees that aren't real Antiguas. Um, you'll learn about that when you're there. Um, Antigua is a region that um, put itself on the map with very high quality washed arabicas, has all the great elements for the vol volcanic and uh, fertile soils. So they created this demand globally in the world and then they suddenly saw um, a greater supply of Antigua coffees hitting the world than there, there is actually uh, in production. So you know how that happens. So the coffee was coming in over the border, coming in through Honduras, El Salvador, um, even neighboring regions in Guatemala. So um, I'll show you a few slides that came from, that comes from the Antigua Producers Association for this area that you'll be going into. They've done a great job of using technology to map uh, production zones and to map the areas where the coffee is produced as to give themselves a competitive advantage. And uh, the Guatemalan Coffee Association is trying to do this with all the different states in, in, within the country. So, and then the uh, volcanoes here of Acatenango, uh, Agua is the volcano, and then the smaller one that's, Pacayo was gonna say, but I think you guys probably know the three names of the volcanoes. Most of the coffee, like you saw in the, in the video we were just looking at, uh, from in, in this Antigua region are coming in on these areas right here on the slopes of these volcanoes, incredibly f uh, fertile um, uh, soils in the region. Um, what the association now is trying to do is plot those farms. In fact, San Miguel, uh, you can see some of that in this area right here. So between these two volcanoes, I can go back and show you. You'll see when you're there in the region. So essentially, the, um, uh, as, you're, as you're in this area of the, of the country, you've got this incredible um, vector that's created between the volcanoes. 
where you get the right moisture, you get all of the right currents in the air, so you get the precipitation that's needed to make the coffee just excellent. And it's the magic of the Antigua coffees that every year they come at the same time, they flower on schedule, there's just so many wonderful things about it. It's also an industry that's under a lot of threat because as you can see from the roads and, and access points from Guatemala City and the highways to the south coast, you end up with an area that's being developed very intensively. So a lot of people are facing that trade-off and you'll probably see some of that. Hang on to land, try to produce coffee, eke out a living, hope that you get a premium price or sell it to somebody to be developed into a hotel or um, a nice residence or something. So it's, uh, and we're seeing that all throughout Central America in the coffee industry. It's an obvious concern to us, um, but you know, what, what can we tell the producers? I mean, you know, it's their livelihood, their income. Uh, we can only hope that um, they're able to produce high quality coffee and they're able to you know, make a good business of it so they can keep that land in production. One of the things that happened uh, in October of 2005 when Hurricane Stan hit was that all of the things that we put into place that I showed you as the integrated approach played out in a way that enabled our business partners to really weather uh, the, the hurricane and not necessarily weather it, I mean they were severely affected as well, but to overcome and make a lot of progress in the, in the reconstruction. So it was a very difficult time for us. A year ago uh, was a really tough time, uh, end of October. I was traveling here in the US. I was supposed to be in the region. I couldn't go. When the storm hit, um, it dumped up to 20 inches of rain. We had some places that were getting 12 inches of rain in 24 hours. I laugh about that because we had about 12 inches this weekend in Seattle, but we can, of course, absorb the water. And after a long, dry season and, and um, uh, places where, where there's a lot of instability, a lot of erosion, it, they, they were not able to, and you'll see some of that, there were severe mudslides. One of the areas that we buy a lot of coffee from uh, that's up in the Atitlan region on the lake, Santiago de Atitlan, was severely struck. In fact, we had uh, just completed inaugurating a school there that we worked on. Our uh, previous CEO had visited. He uh, got the company behind him in, in rallying support to work with the supplier to build a school. Um, the whole uh, village in that area was uh, washed away. So you probably saw that in the news. You're probably going to visit some of that or see that area. There were people there who did survive, though, and so we immediately had to work with them to do what we could to try to um, put in place an emergency plan. And we can't do that by ourselves, obviously, so what we did at the time was we worked um, with our suppliers, providing immediately uh, some ground support, um, so our suppliers were able to get in. We were able to use uh, infrastructure that we could tap into to provide aid, um, in some cases much faster than any aid agency. We were. Um, in, in some places, first on the ground, um, the community, especially around Panabash, on uh, uh, that area of Santiago Atilan, has a long history of distrust of the government. So they didn't let the soldiers in. They didn't actually want the government coming in. You probably saw that on the news. People were carrying bodies on their own because um, they didn't, they, 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 all the distrust, all the problems they had, they just wanted to deal with this on their own. They did allow um, our business partners to come in and provide aid. So we were able to get both helicopters and trucks through um, at the time, and so that was a, a big thing. And, and then we um, shared those uh, avenues with, uh, with our aid partners because they also were not able to get in quite as fast. So uh, Mercy Corps, um, we got, went ahead and gave them a quarter million dollars to help in relief efforts in the region um, and did a number of other things with some of the other aid agencies. Here's an example of the Mercy Corps work in that region, 19 communities that they were to work with, they were able to work with, and then they really um, are obviously much better at this than we could ever be and our partners, our business partners could be. So setting up cash for work, rebuilding programs, doing a number of things to help uh, the local communities. So it was an infrastructure, you saw the pictures, a lot of devastation from 
um, roads washed away, uh, just a number of things. At the time, of course, the, the last thing on our minds um, was a coffee, but it was really foremost on the minds of a lot of the survivors and producers because it's their only source of income. So for us, you know, it's the human loss, the devastation, and um, we can always get coffee from other regions. But for those producers, that's their cash crop. It's all they had. And so for those who survived, it became a big issue. How they were going to get the coffee out, how they could rebuild the roads, what they could do to improve things that had been damaged. So you'll see lots of remnants, I'm sure, of the hurricane. It, these types of disasters hit. They linger, and there's obviously long-term effects, and, and including just the devastation of the families, displacement of people. You know, we see the devastation to the crops. Okay, 55,000 coffee trees to replace a tree. You know, that, that, those can be replaced. In three to five years, they can be producing again. But um, those longer-term problems, loss of life, obviously all of that are the, the much more severe and, and things that you'll see. Um, so I thought that was useful just to give you that sense. This was the school that I talked about before in 2004 after the inauguration. Uh, very nice uh, structure. They added a second floor because there was such demand. It was the only school in the region. After the hurricane, you can see the devastation. The mud went up through the second story, uh, wiping out the structure. So um, we put in place uh, work to build a, a second school, an emergency school, located a, a little bit further from the town. And again, that's Peter, our director, as you saw in the earlier picture, coming there and, um, to help and, and bringing that new school uh, to the community and sort of working with them. He's very well received there. People know him very well, and he's, he's, uh, he's a real partner to, the, to that community. So I don't want to spend any more time on the presentations because I want to talk about what's, what you're interested in and, and um, see what else I can do to help prepare you for the trip. So hopefully I gave you a good overview of kind of our view of CSR and why a country like Guatemala is important to us from a coffee and quality perspective, and then all the things that we do behind the scenes to ensure that, that we're a good customer and a good neighbor for, the, for those producers. You've been listening to a presentation from the Center for Social Innovation at Stanford. For additional practical and provocative ideas, check out the Center's award-winning publication, the Stanford Social Innovation Review, at www.ssireview.org. Registered members of the Conversations Network receive a wide variety of benefits. For free membership or to help support our efforts through your donations, visit conversationsnetwork.org. Our audio content is delivered by Limelight Networks, taking the cost and complexity out of Internet distribution on the web at limelightnetworks.com. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Jeremy Glenn. Our website editor was Bernadette Clavier. The series producer is Bernadette Clavier. My name is Eric Nee, and I hope you'll be joining us next time for another presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. Thanks for listening. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.